Our second lesson today comes from the book of Romans, chapter 6, starting in the first verse. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For being united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so we no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. In this section of the epistle from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, Paul is striking a significant chord that will change the focus of this letter. First, tying together the threads of theological thought from chapters 1 through 5, but also connecting the central tenets of the book of Romans with a giant underscore. That central tenet, justification by faith in Jesus Christ alone is reinforced throughout this letter. What we see here in chapter 6 is the binding. See, the text is shifting from justification of the sinner to sanctification of the believer. Paul is laying bare the gospel for the believers in Rome. Secondarily, Paul is encouraging the church in Rome as they face unprecedented persecution, both spiritually and physically. At this time, the Emperor Nero in Rome was making the persecution of Christians a sport, a spectacle, using the death of Christians as a tool to defeat the morale of the early church. So at this point, God is using Paul to focus on what is gained through God's grace in the sacrificial atonement of Christ's blood. This focus was to help these early Christians and give them a reassurance of their hope in Christ. See, we're catching Paul in mid-thought here, carrying forward from chapter 5 where he kindles this thought. But here in chapter 6, he continues developing it. See, Paul is ramping up to something very important, to the sheer weight, the immensity of God's grace. Even to the point of saying in chapter 5, verse 20, that as sin increases, grace overwhelms it. And this is where we find ourselves in chapter 6 right now. The grace of bringing us into a closeness with Christ that we cannot comprehend. This grace, this gift, this gift of Christ's death and life is baptism into Christ. Referring to the sacrament of baptism in this section by Paul is where we find ourselves living under the word's authority today. There are two significant sides or oppositions to baptism, and we know them well. We celebrate both here regularly together, life and death. 
we know that our sins lead to death. We also know that this fleshy vessel is sinful, weak, and temporary. Our relationship to sin is one of death. We are dead in our sin, and we are slaves to our flesh and our desires. This is, of course, before Jesus Christ changes us. So life and death. In this case, as the apostle outlines, and as many times as we see with Jesus Christ, things get turned around. So what we see here, rather, is death and then life. See, it is only in the death, only after the passing, the shedding of the old, that one can find true life. Does life mean that we can live however we want to? Just ignoring sin and counting as part of God's nature to just continually forgive all of our sins? Think of it as a weekly hall pass from Monday to Saturday, only to be renewed every Sunday morning. To continue in our sin using God's grace as an excuse, continuing on our own paths. Paul, in fact, addresses this directly with the resounding, by no means. See, we are set free from sin, to live a life free of it, unencumbered by it. Free from the shame, fear, and doubt that keeps us from sharing the good news of life in Christ. This life is outlined by Paul, and he begins to lean towards it in the later chapters of this letter. It is one that seeks God's wisdom, discernment, turning from sin, and turning from a life that looks unlike, or much like, I'm sorry, much like the society around it. A soul reborn and changed forever. Seeking Christ and living out the fruit of that change in a still broken world. It's a life in Christ. But we aren't quite there yet in Paul's epistle, so we have to come back over the next few weeks to hear the rest. So today we talk about death and then life. We encounter death. A death that is tied to our creator, Jesus Christ. This death has to be carried by Christ because he's the only one worthy to carry it. The only one able to fill the cost of that sin. The only one to defeat the death that is earned. It is only when we realize the significance of Christ's death. And only then can we begin to fathom the life that is in Christ. So Paul explains that indeed a death has occurred. Christ's death and sin's defeat. And then our death and spiritual resurrection. So the sacrament of baptism, the gift of Jesus Christ that Paul spearheaded in chapter 5, is rightfully and joyfully celebrated. And for good reason. God's grace is not earned, but given. It is a gift. As Paul explains, and in what may not be readily apparent, is that baptism in Christ is just as much about death as it is about life. This baptism into Christ's death is a shedding of the past self, washed clean and brought to new life by Christ's identity. As our brother Luther taught, both a sinner and a saint, a new creation and a temporary sinful vessel. We don't get to see, we don't get the new self as Paul extrapolates until the old self, the old image, is washed away. The blood of Jesus washes away our identity that is apart from God and creates a change within us and through us. So we know this imagery is not lost on us. Blood and death are intertwined. 
but Jesus' blood is triumphant. We will soon enter into the season of Lent where we remember and indeed celebrate our Lord's passion and atonement for our sins. We are reminded of the imagery of blood and death. Many think of the Passover as it comes to mind as the blood of the Lamb protected the Israelite people from the final plague. And again, the blood of Christ begins the new covenant in the Lord's Supper that we celebrate together. And the blood of Christ atones. It satisfies the immense weight of sin. That blood, that death is ours. It is rightfully ours. We carry that weight. In our rebellion and in our sin, we bring that into the world. But see, God was not willing to let us fester and die under the weight of our own sin. Even when that sin, our sin, nailed the perfect lamb the perfect sacrifice to the cross. God prevailed and Jesus rose again. In that span of time, sin and death, the result of sin was defeated. Who here remembers the uh, old school overhead projectors that we had in class? Yeah, remember those? That was the only way I passed math class. So I was thinking about the imagery of this, right? We know, in fact, that baptism uh, is real and Christ's death and resurrection is real. But I'm thinking of the imagery of it. When you overlay the imagery of Christ's death and resurrection with baptism, you would find that the two events are eerily similar. This is not by chance. God doesn't work that way. Just as God orchestrated the heavens and spoke all things into existence, He also has a beautiful way of bringing events back around to fulfill one another. Think of Christ and the fulfillment of the laws. He fulfilled them, didn't abolish them. So baptism into a death like his so that we may join in a life like his. Just take a moment and think about the awestruck, amazing, completely mind-blowing event of the resurrection. This, of course, just days after Christ's death on the cross. God invites us into that life. Baptism is forever tying us to God's triumph. See, death is not the end for us. We share our hope in this, this sure and certain hope. We can and should rejoice in the death of our old selves and that it sets us loose to live in Christ's identity. When we are baptized, we are brought into that identity. This doesn't mean that we don't continue to struggle, that we are perfect. Again, as Paul says, by no means. What it means is that we are no longer dead in our sins. It means that our life, as guided by the Holy Spirit, will continue to move ever gradually towards Christ. We no longer fear death, but we do humbly turn our will over to God's good and perfect will. But how do we do this while we're still living in this world? We do this by incorporating others into the body of Christ, truthfully living under the authority of Scripture and living in a community together, upholding our promise to raise one another up in the faith. Further, when we baptize, we rely wholly on the Word of God. Without the Word of God, baptism is just water and a damp forehead. 
but with God's word. With God's word, then it becomes something altogether beautiful and much, much more significant. This is a gift from Jesus Christ. In baptism, we are brought into Christ's death and his resurrection. You may notice that in this passage, and in fact, this entire chapter, the Apostle Paul does not mention water. This is purposely done as we are not baptized to water. We are not baptized into water. We were baptized to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And by his grace, his power, and his work. But we do have work to do. We have a promise to keep. When we baptize people into the body of Christ, we ask the sponsors, the parents, and indeed all of you to support that person's walk in faith. It is a weight that we carry together. This promise that each of us makes ties us together not only in baptism through Christ's power, but in our promise to join together in a community of faith. Our identity becomes less about the individual, less about the I and the me, but rather our identity in Christ as the body of Christ. One body, many members, one mission. Christians now become united to Christ so that his death for sin became our death to it. and His triumph is shared within us and lived out through us. As chapter 5 outlines, the old Adam identity passes away. We take on the identity of the new Adam in Christ. And this triumph is permanent. But this triumph also binds us to one another in Christian living. Both in our struggles and in sharing joy. Together we follow the work of the Holy Spirit in working together. Sharing in life. Learning from one another. And then simultaneously seeking to bring others into that fold. To share this gift, this sacred gift of death and life in Christ. So you see, Paul is writing about a tough truth here. We usually believe and act in a way that we are free. That we make our own decisions, that our choices are only ours. But the Bible never actually paints it that way. It talks about life like two opposing kingdoms. There's the kingdom of the world that goes against God, and there's the kingdom of heaven that follows Christ. There really isn't a third option. So we have to decide which one we're going to live in, which one we will serve. There are two kingdoms we can choose from, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven. To add to this, Bible tells us that we are born into the kingdom of this world. When we start life, we start in the kingdom that is in opposition to God. This is why we all have a tendency to be self-centered, even when we work so hard to be selfless. We're following the values of the kingdom that we were born into. But we do have an opportunity to choose. And this choice is going to be driven by the payoff our values promise us. We choose to live in the kingdom of the world because we believe it will get us where we want to go. It will bring a big payoff. We see things like wealth, power, fame, respect, and love. And we want them so badly. As our old self, struggling against our new identity. The kingdom of the world has a super clear path to getting these things. Money, sex, popularity, athleticism, intelligence, possessions, professions. The world's 
tells us that all these things will pay off one day in the form of people liking us. Maybe even loving us. Our culture tells us that if we live by their values, we will one day find ourselves loved, wanted, and happy. But see, there are cracks in this system. You might remember beginning to see them in elementary school. In elementary school, we try so hard to impress our teachers, our family, and our friends. The scale forms pretty quickly, whether or not you're part of the cool crowd or you're not. Middle school comes and we begin to decide what is true about us. We start learning bit by bit what our identity is, a little bit more about who we are. We're smart or we're not. We're athletic or we're not. We're in the popular crowd or we're not. We keep trying new things, trying stuff out, desperately trying to land somewhere and learn more about who we are. Our hope is that we can figure it out, discover who we are, and then begin working towards the payoff that life has promised us. And when high school arrives, we find ourselves beginning to float away from some of our long-held friendships and moving in new directions. And as we chase down these new directions, we begin running after the payoff in different ways. Maybe some of our friends have made decisions with their lives that leave us mad or confused. Or maybe we've been that friend. Then when we're young adults, we begin to solidify the identity that we carry on into our later adulthood. It's all about pursuing a set of values and the payoff that comes from living in that kingdom. It's tough. It's confusing. And many times, really painful. Sometimes you try to avoid the whole thing and we're just floating back and forth between value sets and groups and just feeling lost. The king of the world makes promises it doesn't keep. It makes promises it simply cannot keep. It's in this world that Jesus steps in and tells us there is another way. There's a kingdom with a different set of values. It's radically different than the one you're living in right now. And the payoff is completely different. But Jesus goes a step further and tells us something we can't see from here. Because Christ is forever and has created everything, he lets us in on a poorly kept secret. The kingdom of the world and its values can't deliver on their promises. This kingdom promises that money, influence, sex, power, and popularity will all lead to hope, joy, and peace, and the king of all payoffs, happiness. How many of us say that we just want to be happy? Jesus has the audacity to stand up and call the kingdom of the world out, and he tells us that it's a lie. We can chase all these things and work the system perfectly if we're smart enough or if we fake it till we make it. The truth is some people are extremely successful at what we call life. We look to that success as a type of benchmark, a ruler for our own life, a path that we want to follow. You think it's a great idea, but it's not. The problem is when you invest in the kingdom of this world, give it your best, give your whole life for it and go all in, you might win. But what you win is a dead end. In chapter 6, verses 21 through 23, it says, But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin, have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus Our Lord.
See, that is the real goal, my friends. What is the result of living in the kingdom of the world and using sin to get your goals? What does Paul say are the payoffs of living in the kingdom of heaven under God's rule? So here's where we're at now. There are two kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven. We're all born into the kingdom of the world. We all live in it. And we all serve its values at some point. But God offers us a chance, a gift to move towards the kingdom of heaven and be a servant to it instead. The kingdom of the world promises paychecks it can't cash and ultimately leads to death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death and eternal death. The kingdom of heaven promises a different route and leads to spiritual life, real life. The kingdom of heaven promises eternal life. Life in Christ through his death and resurrection. Life in Christ as we are baptized to him. What you have to decide is where you will choose to serve. You can only live in one kingdom. There's not a fence between the two of them and you can choose to sit on hanging one foot on each side. You're in or you're out. We're all living for a payoff one day. We're all going to invest our entire life into one of them. Do we do it with the empty promises of this world or the gift, the gift of grace of life in Jesus Christ? So which one will you choose? Amen.